In November of 2023, the merger of Cedar Fair and Six Flags sent shockwaves throughout the industry. How do we get to this point? What does it mean? Welcome to America's Disneylands, showcasing the history of regional theme parks. I'm Barry Hill, and this is Episode 6, The History Behind a Super Chain. Six flags waving every proudly. Now it's showtime at the Crystal In November of 2023, the parks industry was upended with the news that Cedar Fair was merging with Six Flags. Well, sure, the rumor had been going on for quite a while, but none of us outsiders had any idea that this was actually going to happen. Well, it did, and now we're trying to figure out what to think about it. To be brutally honest, nobody thinks Six Flags is a good company these days. The parks are in poor shape in many ways, and upper management just doesn't seem to understand how the parks industry works. There are really good people here and there, like Jeffrey Siebert at Fiesta Texas, but they've lost a lot of great ones. We'll come back to this in a little bit, but for now, I thought it'd be interesting to pull together the histories behind the two companies, how they got started, and the ownership changes over the years. Let's start with Six Flags. The original company got started when Angus Wynn, a developer in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, took a trip to Disneyland and thought that was a pretty good idea. He was bogged down in a huge industrial development project in the Arlington area, and he figured that a theme park would help bring in some cash flow until the other stuff got rolling. He hired a colorful character by the name of C.V. Wood, who was going around promoting himself as the master planner and builder of Disneyland. He was, in fact, the lead project manager who got that park built on time and mostly, sort of, under budget. But he didn't mesh too well with Walt, and you know who won that battle. CV took off, started Marco Engineering, and began designing a few projects around the country. Magic Mountain in Colorado, Pleasure Island in Massachusetts, and the biggest yet, Freedomland USA in New York. None of those would survive over the long haul, but the fourth project he started was for Angus down in Texas. He, along with a successful art director from Hollywood named Randall Duell, began laying out the plans for Six Flags Under Texas, which quickly got corrected to Six Flags Over Texas. The master plan called for not only the park, but a sports sales mart, a driving range, rifle range, bowling, and so on. Halfway through development, however, Angus had had enough. CV was sent packing for the second time, and Randall was asked to start his own company and finish the park. And thus, Duel & Associates was born, probably the most successful park design firm ever. They opened two parks for Angus, Texas and Georgia. Six Flags then started working on a third near St. Louis, Missouri. Six Flags Over Mid-America opened in 1971 and was the last ground-up park built by the chain. About this time, all the other independent theme parks, like Carowinds, Astroworld, and Great Adventure were struggling to stay alive. They had been established by individuals with relatively limited resources. 
the economy was terrible, interest rates were astronomical, and the gas crisis put a serious dent in family travel. None of those parks had deep enough pockets to prop up the business until things worked out, so they all required a white knight to save them. But Six Flags was going pretty well thanks to Angus Wynn selling the company to the Pennsylvania Railroad. It seemed strange, but it gave them access to a very large bank account while still maintaining control over the parks. Now on solid ground, the company set course for aggressive expansion. Maybe due to the challenges of getting Mid-America opened, they weren't interested in building brand new parks. So instead, they began a series of acquisitions, slowly in the early years, but a foreshadowing of what would transpire in the 1990s. First was Astroworld in 1975, Great Adventure in 77, followed by Magic Mountain in California in 1979. Just a few years later, in 1982, Bali Manufacturing purchased the Six Flags assets from what had become the Penn Central Railroad, soon afterward adding the magnificent Marriott's Great America in Illinois to its portfolio. That was in 1984. By 1987, though, the company determined the parks were too much of a financial drain, largely due to expensive seasonal operations and the need for significant reinvestment, and that's just not what they wanted to focus their resources on. So they sold the chain to the Westray Corporation, which held on for a few years. Time Warner slowly became interweaved into the various ownership splits, finally buying the entire chain outright in 1993. Two years later, they turned around and sold a 51% stake in the company to a finance entity, Boston Ventures, retaining partial control over management of the parks. There are other complex details along the way, but you get the idea. After establishing a management agreement to run Fiesta, Texas in 1996, that park became a Six Flags property two years later. These years were generally good for the brand, with extensive reinvestment in the parks, though things gradually began to stagnate as part of the Time Warner empire. Meanwhile, a regional real estate company in Oklahoma unexpectedly found itself trying to help a floundering park make another go of it. Frontier City was destined for the dozers in order to make way for commercial land development. When that deal fell apart, they had little choice but to fix the place up and see what it could do. Well, that it did, enough to make them rethink their purpose in life. Over time, Tierco Group would rebrand itself as Premier Parks and embark on a buying spree throughout the 90s and into the new century that would collect such properties as Wild World in Maryland, Geauga Lake in Ohio, Darien Lake in New York, and Kentucky Kingdom in Louisville. There were lots more, but the big grab was the entire Six Flags chain in 1998, all eight parks. Add a bunch of international parks as well, and Premier became, well, the premier chain for regional properties. Rebranding itself again in 2000, this time at Six Flags, the flags began flying over a multitude of parks around the globe. It was too much. By the mid-2000s, the company was clearly in trouble, in over its head in debt and facing demands from shareholders and investors to do something about it. The massive sell-off and drawdown commenced, including the infamous decision to demolish Astroworld. The 2008 recession didn't help matters for anyone in the tourism industry, and so it was a slow climb from the bottom to regain their footing. Over the following decade, they began dipping their toes in international projects again, but mostly to no productive end. They've hung on through various management changes, doing okay for a while, but very much on shaky ground the past few years. In fact, at one point, 2019, they reached out to Cedar Fair with an offer to buy them. Yeah, good thing that didn't work out. 
In the late 1860s, Louis Zistel built a series of bathhouses along the shores of Lake Erie. He quickly began adding rides and other attractions, and over time, the simple enterprise grew into one of the most successful amusement parks in the country. By the 1970s, Cedar Point was on a roll, rapidly expanding and piling up the profits. But instead of considering numerous offers to purchase the park, they looked outward and bought a small park in Minnesota named Valley Fair. Now officially a chain, management took the company private in a venture renamed Cedar Fair Partnership. But it was a decade before they made their next move, acquiring Dorney Park and Wildwater Kingdom in 1992. Worlds of Fun in Missouri followed in 1995, and then the big one, Knott's Berry Farm, finalizing that deal in December of 97. They now had a major year-round property to enhance their overall financial picture. Along with various water parks, they added Michigan's Adventure in 2001, and in 04, got hold of Six Flags Worlds of Adventure in Ohio, which was the old SeaWorld and Jaga Lake properties. But the big catch, other than knots, was the entire Paramount Parks chain in 2006. This move further diversified their portfolio and brought Kings Island, Kings Dominion, Carowinds, Canada's Wonderland, and the former Marriott's Great American in California. Overall, Cedar Fair has a really good reputation in the business. They seem to operate their properties well, and even though there were years of focusing on thrill rides and generic stuff, they gradually realized it was important to go back to the roots. We began to see parklands and attractions rethemed in ways that paid homage to each park's heritage. So instead of waterworks and boomerang bay, Carowinds got Carolina Harbor, along with reimagined areas Blue Ridge Junction and Aeronautica, all of these reflecting the fact that Carowinds is actually, you know, in the Carolinas, the way the park originally started out. Compare this to the cheap plywood and fiberglass of Six Flags, which continues to remove all traces of their regional histories. Witness the rebranding of Yankee Harbor at Great America to yet another D.C. destination. And what's there, you can't see because it's covered in advertising banners. I once walked into Gotham City and could even see the theming at all for all the advertising. Let's look at the love Knott's Berry Farm got. Both the Calico Mine Ride and Timber Mountain Log Ride got extensive renovations, not just new paint, but all new animatronics and show scenes. And then there's the replica of Independence Hall that Walter Knott dedicated in 1966. A deeply patriotic man who loved politics, he had decided some time before that that he wanted to build a replica of Independence Hall in Philadelphia. So he did, brick by brick, precisely down to the square inch. Bud Hurlbut rose to the challenge yet again, measuring everything and taking extensive notes, including forging a near-exact copy of the Liberty Bell. When Cedar Fair bought the park, the building was 30 years old and showing it. But instead of selling it off or tearing it down, they chose to refurbish the grand structure. It's not a moneymaker. There's no emission charge. It's just there for folks to go visit. But it's another example of doing the right thing and honor the park's founders. Look, many of us believe that if you do it right, if you maintain a beautiful park, run it well, give it a unique theme and reason for us to visit, it'll pay off. Walt proved that with Disneyland, in spite of his accountants going crazy with all of his spending and wild ideas. So, where does all this leave us? First impression? Well, nearly all of us cried out in anguish. Well, our concern, of course, is that Six Flags will destroy the Good Cedar Fair brand. But 
look at the ownership structure they announced. It's Cedar Fair people who will be running the new company. The new headquarters is still in Charlotte, where they've been for years. Industry insiders are optimistic that Cedar Fair was probably one of the best options to save Six Flags. We'll have to wait and see. Meantime, go visit your local parks as much as possible. Do your part to help ensure they remain fundamentally healthy for the next few decades. And if you love the parks and would like to make a career out of it, go for it. We need people who actually, you know, love parks to run these places. Disneyland's success was largely because one man was dedicated to making it work, to making it better, and never letting up. That's what we need. America's Disneyland's is produced by Rivershore Creative. Find out more about regional park history at americasdisneylands.com and find great books at rivershorepress.com. For the complete history of America's regional theme parks, grab a copy of Imagineering and American Dreamscape, available everywhere. Thanks for listening.